From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Ross Gallagher. We've just finished recording our new show, and there was so much to get into. We're bringing you some of the biggest stories of the week, including Prometeo launching what is LATAM's first account-to-account payments platform. Um, really interesting here to find out from the co-founder and co-CEO, Jimena Alaman, about this firsthand. Also, Ramp steps into the buy now, pay later market. And we dive into the FinTech Insider mailbag. So stay tuned for one of the best answers to a question about assembling your zombie apocalypse squad, frankly, any of us have ever heard. We get into all this and much more. But first, a few brief messages. So don't touch that dial. Your favourite fintech insiders are back in London for After Dark Homecoming. Join us at Village Underground on Wednesday 21st of September, where we'll be taking things back to the beginning and recording our new show live. You can secure your spot now at 11fs.com forward slash After Dark. That is 11fs.com forward slash After Dark. We look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to episode 658 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my wonderful 11FS colleague, Benjamin Enter, who's our director of research here at 11FS. Benjamin, how are you doing? I'm really, really well, Ross. Thank you. Um, We've been doing some super interesting projects with some of our clients, which is always exciting. So all good. Thank you. Excellent. All right. I can feel the enthusiasm. Um, And as always, Benjamin and I are joined by some very special guests, um, making a very welcome return to Fintech Insider. We have Jimena Aleman, co-founder and co-CEO of Prometeo. Uh, Jimena, welcome back to the show. Maybe can you give give our listeners an introduction to your role at Prometeo and, and any sort of background? Well, hi. Thanks for having me again. Really pleased to come after i think that was two years ago that, that i was here uh so it felt it feels like a lot of time you know especially in the in the fintech arena um so i am co-founder as you mentioned i'm co-ceo of prometeo prometeo is the largest open banking platform in latam um and basically what we're trying to build is the new fintech infrastructure that the financial sector needs across the region so um happy to be here discussing all things I like. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I mean, great to have you back and um, obviously reflecting on some exciting news for you guys as well. So, so thanks so much for joining us. Um, and actually, it's a fintech insider debut for our next guest, Emily Mann, investor at Redpoint Ventures. Emily, warm welcome to the show. Um, would you mind also giving our listeners just a little bit of a, an introduction both to yourself and to, uh, to Redpoint? Absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, thanks so much for having me on here. It's uh, it's an honor, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. Uh, yeah, a little bit of, about myself. Uh, I'm a VP uh, on at Redpoint here on our growth team, leading our investing efforts in a couple of areas, including fintech, B2B software, and Web3. Uh, my investments so far with the firm include Ramp, which re- is one of our topics today, Flowcast, Orca Security, and Proper Finance. Um, I've been venture investing for over four and a half years now and previously was a founding member of an early stage fintech fund called Point72 Ventures, which was affiliated with the hedge fund. And I actually started my career 
on that side of the fence uh, as a hedge fund analyst covering public stocks across consumer, consumer internet, and fintech. Um, and then a little bit about Redpoint. Redpoint is a Bay Area venture firm founded in the late 90s. We have over $5 billion in AUM, and we've invested in generational companies globally. Some of the companies we've backed include Snowflake, Stripe, Twilio, and Nubank, among many others. Yeah, it's a it's an impressive list of uh, <laughs> the who's who in, in the sort of very, very successful fintech. So, uh, yeah, great, great to have you, Emily. Um, Thank you. Yeah, welcome to the show. Um, okay, great. Well, look, with that, um, let's dive straight into the news. Um, so our first story uh, comes to us from Finextra, concerns Prometeo launching Latin America's first account-to-account payments platform. So Prometeo Open Banking has launched what it claims is the first pan-regional account-to-account or A-to-A payments offering in Latin America. Prometeo's customers can embed bank account payments into their digital channels through a ready-to-use widget. When paying, users can select their country and financial institution and log in with their bank account credentials to confirm the payment. Then the payment goes directly from their bank account to the merchant's bank account through Prometeo's API infrastructure. Jimena, I think it would be crazy to start with anybody else um, on the story. Like we said, great to have you on here to discuss this. Um, I guess just in terms of um, laying out some context, would you mind just maybe briefly giving us the sort of basics for account-to-account payments? So I think that um, account-to-account payments, it's basically the experience of uh, embedding payments that go from one bank account to another bank account. And I think that it's as simple as that. Uh, We are all just used to launch transactions from our bank account to uh, others' bank accounts. The thing is that we always especially in LATAM, we're used, we're used that this experience is embedded in the online banking, you know, like in our banks. And there's no way to embed that experience. Until now, there was no way to embed that experience in other digital channels. So basically what we are changing is the experience of the user uh, so that they don't have to go strictly to their, their, their banks uh, or their home bankings, and they can have that embedded experience in other digital channels. Um, but uh, to keep it simple, I think that it's, it's just experience of having the banking infrastructure embedded in digital channels uh, across the internet. Yeah, awesome. And removes, I guess, a lot of, um, a lot of friction um, at that point of payment for the end user. Yes, I think that um, there are many things that I think makes account-to-account payments um, so attractive. Uh, Of course, across the globe, but especially in in Latin America, you know, like digital payments are crucial. We all know we all know that post COVID, you know, like, okay, this is happening. And so far, the the main avenue, the main railroads for those digital payments having credit cards. Uh, However, credit card adoption in Latin America is difficult. in part because of the fees, in part because, uh, you know, like um, the, the the value chain is embedded of intermediaries, you know. So you have like a lot of different entities participating in this long, long process, which makes the process, of course, uh, more costly. Uh, but at the same time, it makes uh, the process non-transparent all the time. And it's a, a long process. So merchants don't have, uh, don't dispose. Uh, their cash immediately 
Uh, and this is something that account account payments change, you know, like they receive the money immediately. And this is a big shift for merchants. And the other thing that it, it, it's uh, about uh, transparency, you know, many times, uh, and if you talk with merchants, especially, I don't know if in our regions happens the same, but in Latin America, it's really uh, common to hear them say like, okay, I don't know the money that I'm receiving, you know, like I, I get like <laughs> this, um, uh, I have notifications, you know, like it seems like it's clear, but for me, it's not that transparent, you know, the commissions, the fees, blah, blah. Uh, and with account to account payments, uh, it's all transparent, you know, 100% transparent. The money that goes from one point gets to the other. Um, so I think that uh, these things makes uh, account to account payments really attractive. Yeah. Benjamin, keen to sort of bring you in. I think Jimenez done a lovely job of really laying out those those benefits of account to account payment the benefits for the sort of end users the benefits for for the merchants what what were your thoughts when you read this one and i suppose uh what's your sort of your your sense for account to account payments more generally i mean i think account to account payments are a, a huge win for consumers and merchants right because account to account payments offer a lower cost way of making payments right don't get me wrong credit cards were a fantastic solution 40 50 years ago they're brilliant you know the, the way that they ensure that payments go through the way that they verify who the cost that the cardholder is who they are but in the you know four or five decades since people have developed other better cheaper faster ways of doing it um so who's losing out here is really potentially the banks and the credit card issuers that charge those high interchange fees to merchants that are, of course, mostly hidden. You know, the consumers don't see them, the merchants resent them. I think what I was really impressed by is that you've made this work across multiple countries because this is really hard building this in one country. Building this across multiple countries without a single regulatory infrastructure, that's what I'm impressed by because... You know, there's companies struggling in Europe where there is, in, at least in theory, a sort of single regulatory mandate to PSD2. You're trying to do it in a in an equally diverse or more diverse continent without a sort of central regulatory mandate. So hats off to, to what you've achieved. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and of, of course, it's, it's complex, you know, but um, we are tech-driven. Um, early on, we started building APIs. Before Prometeo, uh, me and my co-founders, we started in 2015 uh, building the first APIs for other fintech projects that we were developing. And it was until 2018 that we realized that, okay, uh, this is a product on its own, you know, like LATAM needs this kind of infrastructure and there are many fintechs and many financial many financial institutions that, that need to solve the issue of interoperability with the banks. Uh, and we always approach it from a very lean entrepreneurial tech perspective. And what we do is just, we, we build the software, you know, and I think that part of the beauty of what we have built is that we are not intermediaries. We do not intermediate in, in the money. We do not intermediate with the with the data as well. You know, we just launch a transaction from one point to another. Uh, so we keep it simple. You know, and uh, of course. I say we'll keep it simple, but it's not as simple as that. You know, it involves high tech. Uh, it involves like um, yeah, a lot of coding, uh, and of course, uh, understanding the logics between uh, in each uh, banking infrastructure. You know, and I think that part of the headache uh, that we are solving for our customers is, of course, the customization of this in each 
country, no? the customization of this in Colombia, the customization of this in Peru, the customization of this in Uruguay, uh, and then creating the standard, you know, how do we make this experience swift and easy uh, so that they just uh, plug them into Prometeo and they can play in each of the countries. Yeah, and I guess that localization point is important, isn't it? You know, making sure that it resonates with those local consumers. Um, Emily, I'm, I'm keen to sort of bring you in and sort of get your view, I suppose, more generally on sort of A to A payments. Where's the sort of growth potential? And do you see this becoming a really established um, sort of offering alongside, as Benjamin said, things like credit cards, etc.? Totally. First of all, Jimena, congratulations on the launch. That's really impressive and exciting, as I think a lot of people have said. Um, you look as an investor in the fintech space, of course, we've been keeping an eye on all of the trends that have been brought about. I mean, open banking first, accounts to accounts payments, I think, is oftentimes a, a close corollary uh, built on top of some of the infrastructure uh, that that has provided. I think, look, I would color myself as someone who is probably long-term bullish, short-term skeptical on account-to-accounts payments. Uh, I think fundamentally, uh, it's it will be more disruptive to debit flows than to credit flows. I think credit is just fundamentally a different value proposition uh, in terms of what it's offering to consumers. And so, uh, and of course, this is going to apply differently across different regions around the world, but that's what I, the debit type of transaction is the one that I think is going to be the most immediately disrupted. Uh, and one area that I've always been curious about from an as an investor, and I would love, uh, Jimena, your take on this, is part of the reason, or my understanding, is that part of the reason that banks, issuers, and networks are able to charge such high interchange fees and take a tax on every transaction is because that they help manage chargebacks, they help manage fraud, and they help manage essentially facilitating trust between two entities who may or may not have interacted before, may or may not ever interact again, right? And so that's one thing that I think has been missing on the conversation for accounts accounts payments for a long time. Yes, you know, one, two, three percent fee, interchange fee paid per transaction can be high for a lot of merchants, but um, what are the benefits that they're receiving from that on the back end and how is that going to be replicated and managed when it switches over to accounts to accounts payments? Um, I can, I can pause there, but I would love to hear your thoughts. I have some, some other ones as well. No, uh, totally. I think that uh, it's really interesting what you are mentioning. And of course, that cybersecurity plays an um, fraud and authentication basically plays a crucial role in this. Uh, I think that uh, basically the, uh, and, and that's another part that I really like about the product is that we are trusting in the banking infrastructure. So whenever the user is logging to make a payment, they are logging into their bank account you know, with the credentials that they already use. So basically, we just we trust our infra in our infrastructure in the authentication that the bank already provides and that that infrastructure already has. Okay, uh, so there's no need of another uh, fraud layer or uh, authentication la leather, uh, layer because it's already the the KYC and the um, fraud prevention layer that the bank already has done. So it's the same 
it's the same railroads, you know, like what we are doing is kind of embedding that experience into digital channels, different digital channels, but we are not uh, essentially changing that experience or creating a new one, which is what happens with the credit cards, you know, so they have had to build this whole new experience um, that involves all of these entities and all of the new, new processes. But in the banking infrastructure, all of this is or already takes place. You know, like all of this is already set. Uh, what's not set is the, um, what, what are not set are the tools that allow that experience to be embedded uh, and to interoperate with other channels. And that's what we are uh, setting the ground for and that's what we are enabling. Um, but to your point, I, I really think that uh, we are account-to-account payments, at least at this point, are not competing, uh, in particular in Atam, with credit cards. Uh, and I think that they will compete with cash, uh, definitely. And I think that there's a, a chunk of market there to be um, attacked. And I think that um, definitely what they are, what, what they will, the, the role that they will play is to digitize a, a lot of uh, cash-based uh, cash transactions and help, of course, the merchant to have a better control of the, uh, the money that they receive whenever they are receiving uh, these kind of transactions. Yeah, it's, I mean, such a comprehensive answer. So thank you, Kimena. Benjamin, keen to give you the sort of last word on this, I guess. Um, I think that the conversation around um, card payments, I think maybe some of the, the sort of legacy processes that Emily sort of alluded to, maybe some of those being less efficient than, you know, when you look at payments in an account to account context, as Jimenez just described. Do you feel like this is going to have a sort of impact on interchange fees on card payments more generally? I know Jimenez mentioned eating into cash. Where do you see this going sort of from here? I think you know, Jimena has, has, has touched on a really important point. There's a, there's a number of different ways that people pay for different things, right? People reach for different payment methods in different contexts, and account-to-account -account payments provides a new option. Now, that's going to be a better option for some customers in some scenarios. And for other customers, actually, it's not necessarily going to be obviously faster or better to them. Um, it's also very tough driving adoption of any new payment system because you've got to change people's habits, and that takes time. So I think what we'll see is there will be pockets. There will be certain countries, certain markets, certain types of transactions, certain merchants that drive this really, really fast, and other countries, other sectors, etc., that take a lot longer to embrace this. So I think what I'm sure you'll see here, Mena, is, you know, it will explode in, you know, certain categories in Brazil and another category in Argentina. And in Uruguay, your home country will be really frustrating or whatever. You know, I think you'll see different pockets of this where it will just catch the imagination of customers in one category and boom, suddenly you'll see lots and lots of use. Um, and it'll be replacing cash in one area, debit cards in another area, credit cards in another. And yes, Ross, that will then start putting pressure on interchange fees because suddenly those firms are going, you know, these firms are going to be under pressure and the merchants are going to be saying, to the card networks, well, actually, we've got a good alternative, certainly for the debit card. And to Emily's point, in some cases, you know, tie in some buy now, pay later, and then suddenly you've got a better alternative to credit as well. Yeah, I think it's going to be so interesting to see how it evolves. And I think especially, right, as we stand sort of in the midst of an increasing cost of living crisis, any sort of cheaper alternatives to some of those credit products and equally debit products that people are using, I think will be a welcome change. Um, I feel like we could talk about this story for the whole rest of the show, but sadly, I do have to move us on to the next one. Um, 
Our next story concerns uh, ramp diving into buy now, pay later market. Although I will just say that I feel like they missed an opportunity with this headline. It does feel like it could be ramp rolls into buy now, pay later market. But, you know, look, I'm not a journalist. Who am I to comment? Um, So three-year-old fintech ramp is the latest startup getting on the buy now, pay later boom adding a similar service for business-to-business payments to its flagship corporate card and spending management platform. Under the new offering, Ramp pays vendors up front, but the business that owes the bill can defer its payment for as much as 90 days. The new Flex service charges business users a small fee to finance invoices and then pay back the funds in 30, 60 or 90 days, akin to what firms like Affirm, Klarna and Afterpay have done for consumer purchases. Ramp CEO Eric Gleiman said the fees will range from around 1% to 2% for a 30-day period. Some clients could be able to offset part of that fee with discounts for their vendors offer for quick payment. Like Ramp's cards, limits will depend on a customer's creditworthiness. So to find out more about this really interesting story, we reached out to Jeff Charles, head of product at Ramp, to ask how he sees their customers using this to help their business. It's hard running a business. Not many businesses are as lucky as Ramp to get a lot of funding. Many struggle with the timing of cash out and cash in, and their business model relies on the efficiency by which they can convert their cash cycles. For example, businesses with physical inventory often have to pay their suppliers before they can collect revenue. And this timing issue is only made worse with uh, tough conditions in the market rapid growth, seasonality, and different requirements from suppliers, supply chain management. And so businesses want to use the excess float to manage their cash flows and address the timing issue to maximize the ROI of their business. However, they are not equipped today with the right type of products. Many B2B suppliers don't accept card. They pass on processing fees on on their customers. So credit cards aren't the option. And we thought that was a better way with RepFlex to give companies a more embedded solution and a faster way to manage their cash flow on non-car payments. It's directly embedded in BillPay, so financing on Flex can occur within just a few clicks. And we hope this helps businesses spend a bit less time worrying about um, their cash conversion cycles and a bit more time building products and serving their customers. Yeah. Um, so Emily, given Redpoint's relationship with Ramp again, I think it makes sense uh, to start with you here. I guess um, the the company's last valuation put it at a staggering eight point one billion dollar valuation. Um, did you sort of predict that huge success that Ramp would have when you guys were investing? Look, I, I guess I can't say predict. Of course, we we definitely hoped to see them succeed, but I think that what they have achieved across, you know, growth as well as their product velocity has continued to amaze us and blow us out of the water in terms of what they've been able to achieve in a short period of time. Um, we are incredibly excited about uh, what they're building, and I think you know, even from the early days of speaking with Eric and Kareem prior to our investment, you could tell that they had a long-term vision around what they wanted to build. And that was, you know, very simplistically put, their vision is to help finance teams save time and money, right? And how they get there 
uh, was always going to be a multi-pronged approach, starting with corporate card as a wedge and then building into all of these different payments types uh, over time, bill pay, expense management. Now they're offering some travel uh, capabilities as well. And the holistic suite uh, of being the one-stop shop for finance teams to be able to uh, have full visibility into all of their spend and reconcile across different aspects of the organization has always been part of the the story from from day one. Yeah, and 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 they're demonst- demonstrating it again, right? Part of that sort of long term absolutely vision, fast execution with the introduction of this pro- this, this product. Um, Benjamin, keen for your thoughts on this. Um, absolutely isn't a plug but earlier in the week i recorded an insight show on how well smes are being uh for this podcast how well they are being served um sort of generally and um you know there was a there was a really interesting takeaway from that show that there are sort of as many sort of problems and points of friction for smes as there are sort of smes um but obviously some of the key concerns around sort of helping to manage cash flow, being able to actually focus on running their business rather than the sort of um, the back office and that admin. How do you think this product starts to address some of those uh, concerns that are front of mind for SMEs? I mean, I think Emily sort of nailed it when you know, she talked about Ramp's vision to, um, to to help businesses just sort of get on with running their businesses because you know if you're if you're running a startup it's incredibly difficult or, or even running a, you know any kind of small business it's incredibly difficult you've got all sorts of problems you've got staffing challenges you've got supply chain challenges you're trying to time the market you're trying to predict customer demand and so on the last thing you want to be doing is spending hours and hours on your bookkeeping. Um, or indeed worrying about your finances. And yet the reality is lots of small businesses, particularly when they get paid late by, you know, big customers or small customers or whatever, end up struggling to manage their cash flow. Um, so a product that gives businesses some flexibility over their financing and helps them um, when they need it is, is fantastic. So I think, you know, this is a very logical step for Ramp. I think we'll see lots of other, or most other um, small business financing um, providers doing something similar. It's a very logical move. I think the question is how how easily do you integrate it? How much control? How how easy is it to, for businesses to do it? And also, how do you make sure that small businesses don't take too much credit, right? Because there's always the danger of, you know, hey, hey, it's easy, it's easy, I'll get some credit, I'll get some credit. And then suddenly, actually, oops, our cash flow, uh, suddenly we didn't get that big payment we're expecting. Um, but I think it's a very, very savvy move. And uh, by the way, Emily, I can't believe you didn't take credit for clairvoyance and saying, yes, I knew Ramp was going to be huge. But there we go. Uh, I I love modesty. (laughs) Hey, they still got plenty of room to run. (laughs) That's true. Um, So, yeah, look, I think I I absolutely agree. I think any product that gives businesses, particularly SMEs, right, because they're the, the sort of backbone of economies and countries and regions all around the world and have traditionally been, I would argue, probably quite dramatically underserved. So products like this that give them a little bit more flexibility is great. And I think, Jimena, in the previous story, we talked about some of the risks of credit cards, etc. But I guess there are risks associated also with buy now, pay later products, right? Especially for businesses. 
Yes, I think that, uh, of course, that there, there are risks. Um, but, you know, like uh, all, all the, the credit industry is based on handling and managing and learning how to manage the risk, you know. And, and I think that uh, it, it's part of the, of, the, of the business, it's part of the, of the idea. So it's a matter of implementation. Uh, and I think that um, there's a, a huge untapped market uh, to be served when we talk about credit for SMEs, you know. Um, in, in Latin America, and it's 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 a huge market. Like ninety nine of the of the enterprises are SMEs, and just twelve percent of them get access to credit, uh, and which is rather <laughs> rather small. Uh, I think that in Europe that's twenty five percent. So it's half of what what SMEs in, in Europe get. Seventeen um, percent of that is banking credit. Uh, so I think that uh, it, there's a huge market in LATAM for these kind of products and services. Um, besides that, I'm a huge fan of FinOps, you know, uh, everything that it's been done in that arena, I think it brings a lot of value from for this segment. Uh, so I think that... Uh, it's uh, it just makes sense uh, that by now pay letters are turning into the, the B2B space, you know, and trying to provide credit for small and medium businesses. Uh, in Latin America, where there are a couple of, of uh, big companies doing some something similar. Uh, Clara, Ships, Trival, they, they are all uh, trying to uh, address that opportunity. And of course, it, it's a huge market, you know, and makes total sense. And I think that... Um, if there are companies that have been a huge success uh, managing risk for end users, you know, and you have like Confio, well, in by now pay data you have Atrato, you have Nelo, uh, there, there's uh, no doubt in my mind that there will be huge companies doing the same for B2B businesses and will be able to do it uh, as successfully as, as, as the other ones, you know. Yeah, Benjamin, it seems to link back quite nicely, actually, to the point you made on the previous story that you know, people as well as businesses need different sort of financial and payment tools for different scenarios. Um, so I suppose a useful tool to have in the in the toolkit as long as it's used in the right way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, it, it, it gives Ramp the ability to serve more of its customers, meet more of their needs. And that's what you see successful fintechs and frankly, successful business, digital businesses of all types doing is continually looking for the adjacent innovation. What's the next thing that we can do to help our customers? We've helped them already. What else can we do? How do we make it easier, better, cheaper, faster? Um, and so that's what you see really successful fintechs doing again and again is keep testing and adding adjacent innovations to make the service better, more valuable, more useful to their customers. Emily, keen to give you the last word on this. I mean, Ramp have done that exceptionally well, right? They've they've executed quickly. That, um, that offering has uh, continued to sort of evolve at pace. They have continued to add those sort of complementary products that sort of build out their suite of offerings to businesses. Um, and you mentioned that... Um, the big vision that sort of inspired you guys at the beginning. And I guess you guys uh, are expecting lots more still to come from Ramp, I guess, in that context moving forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think, look, we we believe that there's still much more coming down the pipe to help small businesses, you know, automate and not have to think about finance management and financial ops in the same way. I think, you know, look, the Ramp team did an amazing survey, which found that, you know, the average finance team spends something like 520 hours a year just on manual accounts payable tasks. 
oof, right? It's always been, a, this has always been something that, you know, doesn't need to exist in the way that it is today. Uh, and Ramp wants to build the software that uh, manages your, your financial life as a business across all different aspects. And so we're excited still to see what's to come next. I think it's, it's something that we've all known that businesses spend more time than they would like to doing the back office stuff and less time managing their actual business. But when you when you put a number on it, it really puts it into sharp focus. Um, so no, really exciting. And, and, and again, um, a huge innovation, I think, for businesses, like I said, that have traditionally been very underserved. Um, okay, so we are just gonna take um, a quick pause here. We'll be back very shortly. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series, weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around, such as... On Rampy. Buy now, pay later. The cost of living. ESG. Stable points. Telematics insurance. And inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. Okay, welcome back to the show. So let's get right into our next story, which comes from AltFi. VC investors dislike women more than they like profit. Um, it's certainly a headline that grabs attention. Um, the detail of this story. So in her first article for AltFi, journalist Hannah Duncan has highlighted the gulf in venture funding between men and women. Duncan wrote that 40% of early stage startups are founded or co-founded by women, but that when it comes to securing capital, these hopeful candidates face a barrage of additional obstacles that male founded companies simply don't have to contend with. Of the initial 40% of female led startups, just a tiny 15% secure any funding at all. And even then they receive about one seventh of what men get. Duncan concludes, for God's sake, the solution is obvious. We urgently need investment in female-led fintech. Uh, it's time to end the antiquated thinking and start opening the wallet. Your profit margins will thank you for it. So, Jimena, I'll come to you first on this one. I mean, as a, a female fintech founder, what are your thoughts on this, uh, this op-ed? Well, I think that uh, this is uh, one of my favorite subjects ever uh, i i love to talk about this because i think that it's genuinely true you know uh, and of course i've been fundraising we've raised a seed round a pre-seed round and and it took a lot of rejection uh it took a lot of no's and and for me it, it took me a long time to understand that there was a bias um, so I think that it's important that we address that bias uh, because it's an, an unconscious bias. And I'm I'm 100% sure that it's unconscious, but it's out there. And you, when you look at the numbers, especially uh, from, a, um, uh, from a CEO perspective, from, from an entrepreneurial perspective, uh, it's important that we address this uh, as something that is happening in the ecosystem, you know? Because if you just approach it as a, a singular individual person that is having this kind of, um, of response, uh, it's, you perceive it as something that you are doing wrong, which was what happened 
uh, initially to me, you know, like, okay, I'm not getting the results that I should, why I'm not getting these results. Uh, so it's something that I'm doing wrong. Uh, but then when you met another founder and she has gone through the same and another and another, and then you start reading and looking at the statistics, you say, okay, uh, it's not me. There is something going on here in the ecosystem. And okay, I can take responsibility on what I do. And, but I also can understand the, the context and then I can iterate on that, you know? Uh, so I think that it is really important to, for, for everyone to address this. Yeah, and clear, you know, from what you're saying, that I guess your experiences fundraising as a female founder, you know, you can recognize familiarity in, in, in this sort of, um, in this piece that play to your own experiences. Emily, I guess we, we ended the last story talking about sort of numbers, putting things into sharp focus. I guess the the sort of 15% of that 40% of women that, 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 that do start startups, I guess, again, in this context, puts things really into sharp focus as well, right? Absolutely. Look, I'm not going to mince words, but it's, it's a tragedy. Um, look, here at Redpoint, we've long been early backers of some of the most incredible female founders, uh, including, you know, Rachel Carlson at Guild, uh, Bar Moses at Monte Carlo, uh, Toya Najai at City Block, um, but I, I think the the problem comes, you know, from the top, right? Is my view here. At the end of the day, it, particularly when it comes to early stage investing, a lot of the decisions that are being made are almost gut driven and conviction driven, right? And so you're looking at this person across the table from you and making a bet on: Do I think this person will take, you know, defy all the odds? of whatever 90 plus percent of startups that fail and build this into a generational business. Um, the problem is that people on my side of the table tend to, when they're making those types of decisions, tend to look for people that look like them, right? And so I think I looked it up. Uh, according to Harvard Kennedy School, something like 11% of decision makers at US VC firms are female. And then if we take it even higher up to the LPs, Right. There was a UK study from BVCA that found that 20% of decision makers at LPs are female. And so when you, when it comes to who's controlling the funding and the flows, I think in order to solve the issue, which I think is an important one that it absolutely needs to address, we need to be addressed. We need to see, uh, that that change flow through at all different levels of this ecosystem. Yeah. Benjamin, it's a really interesting point, isn't it? That. Emily makes really that sort of that unconscious bias is almost structural. Yeah, I think as a man, it's really important that we listen and reflect on this topic. Um, so I'm going to share two two reflections. One is, you know, as a white middle class male, it's very easy to believe in meritocracy and believe, oh, I've been successful because I'm really talented and capable. When the reality is that being white, being middle class, being male have all given me substantial systemic advantages that other people haven't had. And it's hard to step back and say, actually, I, have, I've been, I haven't been successful because I've worked hard. I've been successful because of where I was born into and then reflect that other people haven't had those same opportunities and therefore to try and reach out and say, what can I do to help other people who haven't had the advantages I have had succeed? And I, I don't want that to sound patronising, but men need to reflect on why have I been able to succeed? And then the other one is, you know, my wife quite rightly gave me a bloody hard time this morning about my failure to do my fair share of housekeeping. And she's right, and I'm feeling bad about it. And the point there is that men need to step up and do their fair share of all the unpaid labour 
of children and households, which I'm manifestly not doing, because if we want our sisters and our wives and our mothers and our daughters to succeed, we need to do our fair share of all of that kind of stuff that we kind of can take for granted. So there's a lot that we need to change, but a lot of it is men needing to change their attitudes. Actually, probably that's the fundamental. Men need to change their attitudes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And, you know, look, it's such a useful sort of almost like check yourself moment. And um, I think it's absolutely like bang on Benjamin, exactly what you said. Um, And then I suppose him in a, we've obviously sort of focused on like the impact on the founder, the impact on the human. And then I'd, I'd be interested just to get your thoughts on like, the impact on like fintech, right? Because it feels like fintech can be missing out here because we're potentially passing up what are really good opportunities just based purely on unconscious bias. Totally. Um, uh, In Latin America, for instance, uh, 30% of the companies are founded or co-founded by women. Uh, So one third of the teams are uh, co-founded, are from mixed founders uh, and they are receiving almost 20% of the of, of the money that comes in from VCs. Um, so there, there's still a lot of opportunity for investments, you know, and especially when the one that's raising money is the female, uh, the, the statistics are even worse. Um, so I, I think that most, uh, and, and here, this is my group, you know, like, my colleagues, uh, the women that I usually meet, uh, it's difficult to get to a Series B, okay? Uh, and it's difficult to raise uh, post that, you know? Uh, there are, in Latin America, three unicorns that were uh, co-founded by women, but none of these women were making the fundraising. Uh, so I think that uh, there's still a, a lot of things to work on, uh, but I always like to approach it from the from the perspective of, of the vision, you know, like all of the financial tools that we have right now that we use every day were built by men. So it's missing the other half, you know, all of the things that haven't been created yet because women haven't had the chance to build them. Uh, so I think that if we really want to build a diverse a world with different tools, tools that we cannot begin to think of, uh, we need to start funding diversely. You know, we have to fund diverse teams with diverse visions that they can complement the world that we already have. Because this world is, is, is fantastic, but it could be improved, you know, like there's a lot of things to be built yet. And then I, I think that there are many women out there with fantastic side, fantastic ideas that are just looking for the fun, right funding to get those ideas into the market. Yeah, I mean, Emily, I, look, I guess um, not to sort of preempt, but I guess you'd probably agree that there's a lot that can be done to sort of start to address this issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think your your point was a really interesting one because I think at the end of the day, founders end up building businesses that solve usually problems that they have had encountered in their lives, right? And if we think about across the world, who tends to be in control of finances for many households, overwhelmingly, it's a lot of women. And so I think, you know, this funding gap issue fundamentally changes the types of products and solutions that that we see in fintech today. Uh, And addressing it will probably mean that there will be a ton of more interesting 
types of tools and products and services that are tailored towards the day-to-day problems of modern women and modern families. Yeah, look, I completely agree. Um, and I think the the sooner we start driving some of that change, um, the better for all of us. Um, okay, look, I'm going to move us on um, to our next story, which comes from TechCrunch with a headline that CSI, not that CSI, um, a decades-old fintech solutions vendor agrees to be acquired for $1.6 billion. So Centerbridge Partners and Bridgeport Partners have announced plans to acquire the publicly traded Computer Services Inc., or CSI, a provider of payments processing and regulatory compliance services. The amount paid is $1.6 billion in an all-cash deal. CSI might not be a household name, but according to the Paducah, Kentucky-based company's website, it's been around in some form or another since 1965, shortly before it began operating a data bank processing center in Madisonville. Throughout the 1980s, CSI built a network of data centers, began selling its first PC software, and developed what it claims was one of the first online ATM systems. More recent years saw CSI launch a mobile banking solution and products relevant to business intelligence and enterprise risk management. And today, CSI claims to have nearly 2,600 customers and more than 1,100 employees worldwide. Benjamin, I'll bring you in first here. What were your, uh, what were your thoughts on this one? And I have to admit, although I've worked in financial services, including in the United States for a very long time, I had not heard of CSI. Um, so they're not just not a household name. They're not well known in the financial services industry as a whole. My understanding is that a lot of the business they do is with credit unions um, and that they're doing a lot of work with all sorts of providing all sorts of services to credit unions. I think this is, I mean, this is really a privatization, right? It's taking a public company private. I assume that the intention of Centerbridge and Bridgeport is to um, do some, you know, do some clever engineering, maybe merge this with another company. It's a, you know, it's, it's a very profitable business. So you've got a profitable core business. Okay. How do you make that more efficient? How do you generate more returns out of it? Are there a couple of other businesses in their portfolios that can merge into this? Um, you know, this is a little bit of a cash cow. Um, so I think this is probably looking at, okay, what, what can we squeeze out of this? How do we make this more efficient? Um, but I have to admit, I'm not very familiar with this business. Yeah, no, it seems a reasonable take. Um, Emily, what were, your, uh, what were your thoughts on this one? And what's the VC lens? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's great to see more success stories in payments. Um, and I think, you know, like yourself, Benjamin, one of the things that I've been really surprised by is as I've spent more and more time in payments, there's actually a lot of these sleepy businesses that are under the hood doing significant volumes uh, and revenues that, you know, no one has heard of uh, and tend to be in, you know, what you wouldn't consider to be the tech hubs, right? So like Florida, uh, you know, Atlanta, Texas, I think these guys are based in, in Kentucky, was it? Um, and so uh, that's it's good to see that there's increasingly businesses like this in the limelights. I took a little, I did a little bit of digging into their financials and wow, it's actually very impressive, right? So this is a business that did 320 million in revenue growing 9% year over year, which is an acceleration from 2.5% or so the year before uh, with 25% EBITDA margins. Um, I also found that 
earlier this year, the company kind of teamed up with NYDIG. They announced a partnership to help offer Bitcoin services to financial or to some of the credit unions so they could then in turn offer sort of crypto type solutions to their customers. And I'm wondering if that's part of what is driving some of the acceleration, reacceleration in growth and uh, potentially even private equity interest in the business. Yeah, that's super interesting, right? Because on the face of it, it's a, you know, a not well-known business in sleepy Paducah, Kentucky, but actually, you know, as well as having some really strong fundamentals, Emily, I think in terms of the financials that you mentioned, but also actually like innovating at the the cutting edge of sort of financial uh, technology. Um, Jimena, keen to, to sort of bring you in, what were your thoughts on this story? Um, of course, as everyone here, I wasn't familiar with this company. Um, but what I uh, what I thought was because we are all fintech geeks, you know, and and lovers, and we are all the time talking about new stuff. We always tend to forget that there 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 is a existing infra payment infrastructure, for instance, you know, like uh, there is a d digital payment infrastructure that, of course, can be proven that we are trying to uh, make perfect, blah, blah. But there are many companies working on the pre-existent uh, infrastructure. And in many cases, those companies are uh, the, the backbone of the financial sector, you know. And there are uh, companies that are uh, embedded into legacy systems, you know, and deep down in the guts of the banks, of the processors, you know. And getting there is so, so difficult, so very difficult. And because of it, it is so difficult, it's so worthy, you know. Uh, and uh, if you got there, Early on, like 30 years ago, uh, 40 years ago, uh, you are so embedded into the banking operation uh, that most likely they won't let you out. You know, uh, most likely you will uh, be there uh, for as much as it's necessary. Um, so I think that it makes total sense uh, for private companies to start acquiring this legacy um, perhaps old school companies to try to refresh them no? or try to embed them and uh, even use their customer network, you know, uh, use their customers to penetrate those old-fashioned customers with new products and services. Um, and I think that they are doing perfect. Yeah, I listen, I, I, I think, Jimena, that's such a... I love that call out. So it's almost like another sort of check yourself moment. It's like we can all sit here like as fintech geeks and sort of almost dismiss this and go, oh, I don't even know about 1965. But actually, like plumbing is not only essential. I mean, Benjamin, it uh, can be sexy and obviously it's hugely profitable. I'm not sure about sexy, but profitable, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Emily, I'm, I'm keen just again to, to sort of lean on your insight a little bit. Does this tell us that maybe um, the the sort of scale of like the the VC investment slowdown has been maybe over exaggerated, or actually is this about going back to what you said about those sort of business fundamentals being really strong? Is this just VCs maybe being a little bit more selective in terms of where they're putting their money? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. This is um, I think that they, their business fundamentals are strong, but I also believe that all of the doom and gloom that we've seen in the headlines of like fintech is dead or you know fintech funding is over, uh, 
is is a is very much so overblown. Um, I think if you kind of check yourself and take a step back and look through the lens of just funding globally, I did a little bit of digging. Uh, in I think the same time frame, Q4 last year to Q2 this year, uh, venture funding in general decreased something like 63%. Whereas fintech is down, you know, in that same time frame of around 42%. So, you know, still bad, but really is it above and beyond all the other sectors? I think you're seeing generally a market correction in terms of the amounts uh, that companies are raising and the velocity at which they're raising. But fintech, I think, is a space that I myself and many other investors continue to be extremely excited about. Just given, as Jimena, you were saying, there is a lot of crusty old legacy infrastructure that exists out there that, um, you know, big parts of our financial ecosystem today is being held together by bubble gum and, you know, duct tape and <laughs> uh, people <laughs> filling out forms in like blue and green screens. And so I think there's still a lot to be done uh, in terms of innovation. It's that old, uh, that old, was it Frank Sinatra that said rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated? I thought That's it was kind Mark, of what it feels it was like. Mark Twain, wasn't it? Was it Mark Twain? All right, I, think so. I don't know. Um, although I feel like Mark Twain gets attributed a lot, a lot of quotes that I don't know what he ever said, but that's fine. Um, all right, now for the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the other stories from the week that we don't have time to cover, but that still definitely uh, deserve a shout out. So Benjamin, do you want to get us started? Yes. So the first story comes from Britain's Daily Telegraph, which reports that Barclays is the biggest culprit for the savings gap. So the gap between UK mortgage and savings rates is growing as high street banks fail to pass on interest rate rises. Not one of Britain's nine biggest banks and building societies has raised its easy access savings rates to match the 1.65 percentage point increase in the bank rate, the Bank of England's bank rate, since December, according to data from Money Facts. Barclays has the biggest gap between its mortgage and savings rates. Its easy access savings rate is still at just 0.01%, um, one basis point, but its standard variable rate mortgages have been increased by the full 1.65 uh, points since December, in line with bank rate rises. HSBC has been the slowest to pass on rising interest rates to its mortgage borrowers, having bumped its uh, standard variable rate by only one percentage point since December. Mortgage borrowers pay 4.54% now, the lowest rate. So even though savers have been stuck at 0.2%, the bank has the second smallest gap between mortgages and savings rates. So um, obviously banks make money from net interest margins. So obviously banks are always going to try and widen those net interest margins where they can. Um, the trouble is customers notice. My wife has been complaining a lot about this kind of behaviour. I've mentioned my wife twice in one episode. Um, but customers notice. Customers do notice. Savvy customers notice. Um, and so this is the kind of thing that starts driving customers away because they think, hang on a minute, you've jumped up my uh, mortgage rate, but you haven't jumped up my savings. Now, obviously, it's a little bit illogical to have lots of savings if you've got a mortgage because you should offset your mortgage. But people notice. Um, people notice the the bank, the central bank rate rises, and then they notice when their interest rates don't rise. So what happens is some of those savings customers say, hang on a minute, I can get a better, better rate somewhere else. So it seems clever in the short term, but what you're really doing is you're encouraging your customers to shop around, and you're going to lose customers. Um, the people who really suffer are the people who are maybe not savvy enough and don't notice. So 
kind of a tax on people who don't have the time to pay attention to their finances. So I sort of hate this behaviour. But Yeah, and the optics are awful, aren't they? All right, our next story comes from ESPN. So bank to bullpen, Nate Fisher excels in surreal debut with the New York Mets. Um, one year ago, Nate Fisher was employed by the First National Bank of Omaha, uh, great friends of 11FS, uh, determining whether to approve commercial loans. On Sunday at Citizens Bank Park in his major league debut, he issued a denial to Philadelphia Phillies hitters. It's pretty surreal right now, Fisher said. I'm so thankful and so blessed for the opportunity. It hasn't even sunk in yet. With the uncertainty of COVID-19 halting his baseball career, Fisher followed a former coach into banking in 2020 in his hometown of Omaha. Fisher worked there until June 2021 when he signed with the Mariners, making it all the way to AAA, which is the highest level of play in minor league baseball. This season, Fisher is in the big time and playing in his debut for the New York Mets in Major League Baseball. I guess my only real reflection on this is it's like it's hard not to get swept up in like what's like someone that's sort of like been knocked back by the pandemic sort of had to pursue another route but didn't give up and has achieved his deal his his dream of of really hitting the big time and I think uh yeah kudos to him what a cool story um and that then brings us to our and finally portion of the show uh, so we're going to bring everybody back in for this final section. And this week, we're once again diving into our FinTech Insider mailbag. I'm so glad I'm holding the mic on this one and I can sort of pass these questions out to uh, other people rather than have to ask them myself. But we have been asking our social media followers to send in any quick fire questions to the panel uh, at FinTech Insiders. And then we answer a few of them in the show each month. So our first question comes from Dexter Cousins. So it's Intersect, which is a big Australian fintech conference in a couple of weeks. And there's a UK delegation heading down under. Uh, which UK fintechs do you think would be a success um, in the Australian market? Benjamin, to my mind, I think you're the most natural person to give us some view on this. Or being the other Brit on the call. Correct. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, so I think some of the ones that could be really, and I won't spend long on this, I think a couple of the ones that could be really interesting. Uh, Snoop. I think Snoop is doing a fantastic job of helping people understand their finances, where their, where their money is going and so on. So I think Snoop's a really interesting one. I think uh, some of the open finance, open banking API players, so someone like TrueLayer or Kodat, um, I think they could be really interesting in the Australian market. You know, the, the Australian market resembles the British market in some ways. It's a little bit further behind in areas like open banking. So I think some of those kind of ones um, would be super interesting. I do think Starling has, I know Starling's a really obvious one to mention, but I think Starling's gone a lot further than I've seen any of the Australian banks go, particularly in sort of small business banking. I think about marketplaces and so on. So I think what Starling's done is super interesting to Australian firms as well. So there you go, there's three or four. Yeah, awesome. And I agree with all of those. Um, I love Snoop, so I think they're a particularly good shout. Um, okay, our second question from the mailbag. Um, Jimena, heads up, this one's coming your way. Um, so the cross-border B2B payment space seems so open to disruption. Swift seems expensive, slow and opaque. 
What are the barriers to solving this? I love this question. Uh, you know, and I think that um, it's uh, a really smart one. Early, early in the conversation when we first started, uh, we talked about account-to-account payments, and um, I kept thinking that we were approaching it as an end-user perspective. You know, like me doing an account-to-account payment, me Jimena, the person. Uh, but usually, account-to-account payments are really, really useful for companies. You know, for B two B. Okay, uh, where usually the railroad is the banking railroad and the corporate cards, that they have another purpose in, in the operation of the company. Um, and I think that uh, the same happens uh, with uh, international account-to-account payments, and um, that's basically SWIFT. Uh, it's obviously something that it's been, that will be disrupted. Uh, and I think that uh, there are a couple of attempts of doing this, uh, where that's blockchain and uh, and that could be approached uh, using blockchain or whether that's a, a whole new network. And the thing here, and I think what it, what's uh, been preventing this from happening is how you build that network, uh, because actually building Swift, uh, what's quite complex, you know, and rebuilding it, uh, making it more efficient, uh, of course, that will take uh, some time, you know, and I think that, uh, of course, the cross-border space is something that many entrepreneurs uh, are watching and they are trying to understand the dynamics and how to hack it. Um, Of course, at Prometeo, we're interested (laughs) in that. but uh, it's step by step because what you have to rebuild is the whole banking networks, uh, make them uh, AP5 at least, uh, understanding how you can uh, make more efficient the, 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 the fees, you know, and uh, how to hack that fee system. Uh, so creating, and, and I think like uh, to the point, uh, the difficult the difficulty of building this is how you build a whole new network again and how you make it more efficient. Uh, because Swift Networks is really, really powerful, of course, because of its capillarity. And creating a financial network that it's global and that it works is not as simple <laughs> as it might sound, you know, like um, it, it takes, uh, of course, an entrepreneurial endeavor, but it takes a lot, a lot more than that. Um, so I think that we, we will see something happening there uh, in the short term. Uh, uh, but I think that, yes, it takes time. Yeah, and huge appetite, I think, for, for disruption in this space. But I mean, like you said, no shortage of complexity. Um, and then, Emily, I guess you probably get technically the most difficult question um bearing in mind there's three people on this call so people are going to get disappointed pick a team of three of your of three for your zombie survival squad which can be made up of colleagues fintech insider hosts again not a plug um family industry figures celebrities you name it oh gosh you definitely saved the hardest one for me um this is a this is a tough one um I guess I got to go with start with someone like a like a Jeff Bezos or some sort of tech million billionaire just for the sole reason that I'm pretty sure that they have some sort of super high tech fully equipped bunker somewhere <laughs> that I could hide out in and I would love that. Um second would be I don't know 
some sort of survivalist, like a Bear Grylls uh, or something of that nature, if we do get caught in the woods and stuck um, fending for ourselves outside of civilization. Uh, and then, gosh, I'm just thinking through, I, I would probably be the most useless person on this team, very clearly. <laughs> uh, I need one more. Um, do you guys know that guy? Uh, there's this guy, Johnny Kim, uh, who he's in a bunch of memes for like, this is the, the kid that my Asian parents will never let me live down, but it's one dude who was simultaneously, uh, he was a Navy SEAL uh, at one point. He was a, a Harvard Medical School graduated doctor, as well as a, what was the last one? He's oh, a fully trained astronaut. So I feel like that's a little bit cheating because it's a combination of like five different skill sets into one human being. But yeah, I think that will improve my chances of survival from like 0.0001 to like maybe slightly above that. I, I love it that you gave a really serious answer to that question. You thought really hard about if the world was genuinely no, reduced to the genuinely last four people. I, I don't know, after the last two years. Yeah. I, I appreciate the effort and the endeavor on that as well. If I got that question, I was just going to say the three of you guys. So I'm, I'm really glad that you that you got it and I didn't, right? Because you gave an, an answer with some thought and some consideration into it. Um, awesome. Okay, that wraps up this week's news show. Um, thank you guys so much. It's been a really fun show. I've really enjoyed it. Um, let's go around the virtual room. Um, if you could just tell us where our listeners could find out um, a little bit more about you. Jimena, let's let's start with you. So, yes. Uh, so, of course, you can reach out to me through my email, exaleman.prometeoapi.com. Uh, um, you can reach out through me through Twitter uh, and see me Aleman. Um, LinkedIn, of course. I uh, would love to chat uh, with Anyone that's interested in learning more about account-to-account payments and what we are building at, at Prometeo. Awesome. Thank you, Jimena. Emily, what about you? Yeah, likewise. Um, my email is always open, so it's very simple. Emily at redpoint.com. That'll come straight to me. Or follow me on Twitter, uh, Emily double underscore man, um, or connect with me on LinkedIn. Excellent. Benjamin? Uh, yep, so you can reach me, Benjamin Ensor, on LinkedIn or through 11fs.com. Excellent. And as for me, you can find me at Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter. Um, and thank you for listening. Uh, please do join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com if you'd like to get in touch. Thank you very much. Goodbye.